2 Kings 16, 1 through 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elith for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elith. And the Edomites came to Elith, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser of king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its detail. And Uriah, the priest, built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah, the priest, made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw, it on, throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all of this as King Ahaz commanded. Well, I am excited um, to be here and to be uh, talking about the Advent season. Um, we're going to be talking about, as we have been, the, the light coming into the world. And uh, here at Beaver, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, uh, we're looking at this from a prophetic standpoint. Um, we are celebrating uh, Christmas foretold. So I'm looking at prophecies throughout the uh, Old Testament and looking at Christ coming into the world. We started two weeks ago with Morgan. Um, Morgan looked at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, and um, how that um, showed us 
the blessing to many nations, as well as the blessing to the, the nation of Israel that would come through the offspring of Abraham, through the, the one seed, through Jesus Christ. And then last week, Shane looked at Isaiah 7, uh, and we looked at Emmanuel, God with us that would be born of the virgin. And last week when Shane preached, he, he spoke about um, and explained the things that were going on at the time of the prophecies of Isaiah. He talked to us and explained about Isaiah and warning King Ahaz of Judah not to turn to Assyria. But of course, um, King Ahaz did not listen to what Isaiah had to say and what the Lord had to say. And that's why we actually read 2 Kings 16. I know a lot of people may have been like, why are we reading this? I thought it said Isaiah 9. Well, 2 Kings 16 is actually the context, the backdrop for the prophecy that we receive in Isaiah 9. And in fact, we will look um, as we move into the text, um, we'll back up a little bit before Isaiah 9 and look at Isaiah 8, and we'll see how Isaiah 8 reflects and gives us a little more detail on what 2 Kings, to just really build up and show exactly, I mean, what are we looking at at this time? You know, we on the in, in today's world, we have the scripture, and we, we understand that Christmas time um, is about the birth of Christ, right? Like, like Chris Wilkes talked about, even people will say, well, how do you know Jesus was born on the 25th? So in our world today, especially in America where we live, people genu- genu- generally understand Christmas is about Christ, about Jesus. So we want to look at the, the backdrop and see how this came about and how this was prophesied. So here in 2 Kings 16, we see King Ahaz. And to say the very least, King Ahaz was a rotten king. I mean, uh, it it tells us that he was doing the despicable acts of um, the pagan nations. Uh, He had set up the the worship of Moloch. And so if you go and you read all of of 2 Kings and go and look in Chronicles, Moloch is, is the god. Um, they would build these huge idols to them with furnaces at the feet for them to sacrifice their children to this savage god. And in fact, it says there in verse 3, we see in 2 Kings, um, 2 Kings 16, verse 3, it says, But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the other nations. And so we see that he, he burns his son. And in fact, um, before it says, according to the, the despicable acts of the nation that God drove out before them. And in Deuteronomy 12, we're actually told specifically before Joshua takes the promised land about these acts and they're warned not to do this. So these people have been driven out, but we see this type of worship creep back in into Judah in verse 7, he, said, he goes to the king of Assyria. He says, I'm your servant. I'm your son. So he bows down before the king of Assyria. So he's placing his faith in the wrong thing, right? It literally tells us in 2 Kings that they were sieged, but the land had not been taken. They, weren't, they, they were under attack, yes, but they weren't being taken. And God had just told them in Isaiah 7, I will give you a sign. Ask me any sign. I'll give you a sign as deep as Sheol, as high as the heaven. That, that these people will be gone in, in a short amount of time. But instead, he turns and he places his faith in the king of Assyria. And then he, furthermore, in verse 8, it gets worse, right? In verse 8, it says that he goes and he takes, he has also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. 
So he's placing his faith in this man instead of in God. And then he is stealing these offerings from the temple and giving these offerings to this king instead of to God. And then, of course, what does Assyria do? They come and they, they deliver the kingdom. They deliver Ahaz just as he asked them to do. And then King Ahaz goes to Damascus to pay homage to the king of Assyria. And while he's there, he sees this altar, this altar um, that has been built, and he sends the replica to Uriah the priest and, and tells him to make it. And then in verses 12 through 15, we say, And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar. So the altar has been built, and he goes up on it. He burns his burnt offerings on it. Furthermore, he tells Uriah, every burnt offering will be made on this one. He says, this bronze altar, move it out of the way. And Every offering from the people of Israel will be made on this offering, on this altar. And it can be hard to keep our eye on the ball when we read three, three verses and it's this altar and his altar and the bronze altar. So just for reference, so you guys understand this, in 2 Chronicles 4.1, there is a bronze altar built in Solomon's temple. And you can go there in 2 Chronicles and read about that. But that's this altar. It's this altar to the Lord that has been blessed and has been built for the Lord. He just hasn't moved out of the way. So now we see the very sacrifices in worship that should go to the Lord are instead going to this false god and this false idol. And the bronze altar says it's moved to the side for him to inquire by. So this, this bronze altar that is the Lord's altar, the rightful altar that all these things should be done on, the sacrifices and the worship, are just for him to inquire by. He's turned the great God that has delivered them time and time again into nothing more than a magic eight ball that they can go to and just inquire anytime he might think he needs something from God. And so it goes on to say, um, or sorry, excuse me. So this is, this is what was going on in the time of Israel, right? We see this darkness um, at the time that our prophecy was given. We see faithlessness, demon worship, idolatry, child sacrifice, communing with the dead. Basically, all the things that God had stated were despicable or an abomination to him before the time that they entered the promised land, we now see actively being practiced. And as we move back towards our text um, on page 680, I know we kind of were out of place there. On page 680, the, the Black Pew Bible, Isaiah 9, as we move back towards that text, like I said, I want to back up and look at Isaiah 8 so we can kind of understand. And this is a reflection of what was happening in 2 Kings. It's, it's a prophetic version, so it's, it's kind of explaining this. And starting in verse 9, it said, or verse 19, excuse me, of Isaiah 8, it says, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. So what does this mean? What are we understanding? He's basically saying these necromancers and uh, these mediums, they would answer in vague riddles. If anyone's ever seen, I mean, we see this today with the obsession of the occult. If anyone's seen like tarot card readings, they, they don't know anything. They're, so they give these vague riddles, these vague half answers to make it seem like they, they know what's going on. They know more than they do. And furthermore, at this time, these these chirpings and these mutterings, they would grunt in this nonsensical language. And it would just be this, I mean, it was just, it was demonic. And we would see that. And this is in contrast to what? When in Isaiah goes on to say, should they, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Should not a people inquire of their God? To the teaching and to the testimony. 
Isaiah says, why are you, why are you going to these false gods when you have scripture? When, when you have prophets telling you what to do, you have the law of God that should be sweeter than honey to you. you. You've been told how to obey and what to do and how to live your life, but instead you choose to go to these demons and these idols and these necromancers who know nothing and, and they can give you nothing. And what does he say? He goes on to say that if they will not speak according to this word, being the testimony of God, it's because they have no dawn. They're, they're in darkness. They're in eternal night. There is no light that's broken on these people who refuse to turn back to God. It says they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged. So because they refuse to turn to God, they're hungry, they're distressed, and they become enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king, rightly so, because we know throughout Israel's history, as the king goes, as it was said in Samuel, so will the people of the nation. So rightly so, this king, who we've just looked at, is rotten, and so the foundations of the very nation itself are becoming rotten as well. But furthermore, it says they will turn against their king and their God. They'll turn their faces upward. They'll look to God and they'll blame him for the thing that they've caused. They lift their fists to God and they, they blame God when they are the ones who have brought this upon themselves. So what do they do? Well, they think that God's not there, so they turn to the earth, right? But there's no re relief to be had there. If we look at verse 22, and there will be, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It was dark. Um, it was extremely dark at the time that this was given. I mean, for any remnant that still had faith in Yahweh, the one true God, there was seemingly no hope. They looked around at the darkness of their society, their leader, their kinsmen. I mean, it was evil just run rampant. Evil had control. There was no light to be seen. All around them, pitch black darkness. I was trying to find an example just to, to really help us understand how, how dark this was. And the only one that really um, stuck with me was um, someone talking about old gold miners, and they would go deep into these caves. And um, gold miners, so when you, of course, when you start at the edge of the cave, there's light coming in right from the mouth of the cave. And the deeper that they go into the cave, the less light there is. And so at some point, the only thing to light their path are these oil lanterns that they had to use. And so these old gold miners would have to keep these oil lanterns lit, full of oil. There was constant work to keep that going. Otherwise, if the light went out, it was pitch black darkness. And, and these people, these gold miners who found themselves in these situations in absolute darkness, they would say, they would comment that they would never forget it, that this darkness felt heavy, suffocating, despairing. And I'm sure many of us have never been in caves or, or gold mines. Some of us have, but I mean, we've, we've, experience similar situations to this physically, right? Um, I know for me, a few weeks ago, the power went out in the middle of the night. And when I woke up, I'm, I'm looking for something to shine light, anything to help me see. I'm, I'm tripping over things in my house and I can't see where I'm going. And there's a little bit of panic that kind of sets in when you can't see and you just want anything to help light your path. 
And so this is, this is exactly the type of spiritual darkness going on in the day of Israel. And we can relate to that, right? Um, I think we look at this text and, and we can see this kind of spiritual darkness going on here today. I mean, in our world today, I mean, the kingdom of darkness seems to just be totally expanding. We see rise in crime, lust, deceit, moral depravity, abortion, suicide, war, homosexuality, fear, atheism, disease, psychotic disorders, drug, alcohol addiction, obsession with demonic shows that laugh at Satan and make him your friend and something that you can laugh about. I I think that, unfortunately, this time of Christmas, we're here to celebrate light and, and praise the Lord that we are because it is a time that just like in Isaiah's day, there is darkness upon the land. And this darkness can cause us to be downcast and think, wow, there, there's no hope. But that's what's wonderful. It's Christmas time and we get to celebrate the birth of the light. And that light came to remove darkness. That light came to give us hope. And it was in these kinds of darkest hours throughout all of history is when God has chosen to reveal light, to show his light, so that to allow the radiance of his son, Jesus Christ, to shine most brightly against these dark, terrible backdrops. Consider with me, if you will, we go back to Genesis 3. Um, God had just made Adam and Eve and told them they, had, they could have anything in the garden except for one tree. But Adam and Eve um, ate from that one tree and they were plunged into darkness. And I think we have a tendency not to really think about how dark that moment truly is. I mean, Adam and Eve were made perfect. They were able to walk in the cool of the day of the Lord, see our God, the God we worship, face to face with no barrier. And then they ate from the tree, and now they're afraid of him, and they're hiding, and they're having to clothe themselves. And it's been said throughout the ages that the worst part of the curse was not even not even the things that came, but the being cast out of the Lord's presence. I don't think we can fully understand what it would have been like for them to walk with our God this way, to be perfect, to be sinless. I mean, we've never experienced that. We will one day, if we're in Christ, we will experience this, this sinlessness and this perfect state with the Lord. But these people had this and they lost it. And they were cast out of the garden, never to return. But it was in this most terrible moment, the, the very entrance of this darkness into the world that we're still experiencing thousands of years later that we see the first glimmer of light. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mean, what hope in this dark time where there's, there's nothing good coming out of what just what Adam and Eve just did. The results of their sin are dire, they're dark, they're terrible. There's nothing within themselves that will give them any hope, but God gives them hope. He says, it won't be this way forever. He shall bruise your head. Speaking to Satan, says the offspring of Eve will come and he will crush the head. I mean, and this isn't just hope for us. This was hope for Adam and Eve as they now had to walk in this darkness, walk in the land, toil, the pain, the suffering that would become. It was light to guide them in the darkness, light to guide their path. And of course, it didn't take long for wickedness to continue to spread and darkness to overwhelm the earth. We fast forward to Genesis chapter 6, 
And in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 8, Arguably my favorite word of the Bible, but. You see, because we see these, these times of darkness, we can see judgment, we see in the New Testament um, talks about our sin and our depravity and our nature, our loving of this darkness rather than loving God. And then we see a glorious word that's just three letters, but. But God being rich in mercy, but God being gracious takes pity on us and gives us light. And in this case, but God, now, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But lest we think too highly of Noah, Hebrews 11 tells us that it was because of Noah's faith in that light that was promised that saved him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, trusting the Lord, having faith that his promises are true, the things he says, both the wrath that is to come, the judgment for the darkness and the light, the hope of the salvation. What did he do? He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You see, man had fallen in this short time and it was so dark and it was so depraved that God's going to wipe out the entire earth. He's going to just start over. But we see a glimmer of hope. We see God give us hope that we do not deter deserve. And he determines to save not only Noah, not only Noah's family, but the world. There's no one else that survives when God brings judgment on the earth except for the people that God has determined to save, except for the people who have faith in God. Further, consider Israel. And then I promise we'll, we'll get to our text. Consider Israel. They were in Egypt, right? They were sorely oppressed, heavily laden, I mean, with a, a heavy yoke upon their shoulders and slavery working their hands to the bone. Furthermore, this king that was working them that hard saw that they continued to grow. They continued to multiply, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, slaughter every boy that is born. Every son that comes out, I want it dead as soon as it's delivered. I mean, this is a, this is a heavy place to be. And they cry out to God and God comes to rescue him. But this king was so stubborn of heart and so hardened that when he was struck with nine plagues, boils, locusts, frogs, blood, gnats, hail that killed livestock, they had nothing to eat, darkness, literal physical darkness all around them not being able to see, he still would not let the people of God go. So God sends one final plague, right? The, we know the story, the death of the firstborn son. And it's in this moment that we needed, that the Israelites needed light and that we see light. You see, even the Israelites needed to be protected from a holy God, but he offered a way of protection. By the blood of a spotless lamb spread on the doorpost, God passed over them. He offered light 
through the Passover lamb. They were spared the judgment that they justly deserved for their sins against the Lord. And not only that, they were given the freedom that God promised them, freedom from the yoke of slavery in Egypt. It's in these kinds of darkest days that the faithful prophets to the one true God stand and have stood to proclaim the truth of the light. It is in these moments that God has given us this light. It's in these moments that God gives us a way to see when we are like the gold miners stuck in a cave and have no way to understand how we can even take another step in front of us. And so it was in dark days like these and dark days like we are in today that we saw one of the most clear prophecies of the coming Messiah. So look back with me at Isaiah 9, where we see our first point, which is the dawning of the light. So Isaiah 9, it starts out, but. And like I said, it's my favorite word, right? We just saw at the end of chapter 8 that and they will look to the earth. So they're looking to try to light their own path, looking for a way to move forward because they can't find it and they won't find anything. The gloom of anguish is upon them, distress and darkness, and they're thrust into a thick darkness. But God comes along and, and God says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So the Lord gives hope. He says, this gloom will not last forever and your anguish will end. He gives the Israelites light to guide their path. He goes on to say in the rest of verse 1, in the former time he brought in con into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so we understand exactly what was going on. I know when we look at the Bible and we read about these things, we can kind of get lost in the geography of where things are at. This refers to the invasion and the annexation of the northern parts of Judah. You see, they invited Assyria in to come help free them from Syria and Israel. But Assyria had already came and attacked Judah and had taken Zebulun and Naphtali and split it up over into three divisions. And so this area, the way of the sea, uh, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, that is geog uh, geographically speaking what they refer to as the very northern tip of Judah, right above the Sea of Galilee. And so we see this promise that this land that was in deep darkness will come into light. Going into verse 2, we see the people who walked in darkness. So these people in this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the first ones to feel the pain of war, the first ones to see invasion when invasion would come, the first ones to be taken into slavery and to be oppressed. These people who walked in this darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. And that term on them has light shown. Some translations translate this on them. The light has dawned. So if we remember just there at the end of chapter eight, it says there is no dawn for these people who were worshiping these false gods, these these people who had no faith in God that are, are, are in this perpetual night here, it says, but for you, for the people in this land, the light will come and their eyes will be opened and they'll have light. And the Lord says that they will break for these people who have been sorely oppressed. And I have to imagine for these people, I mean, what hope 
that would give, right? I mean, remember that they were just told in Isaiah 7, 14 that God would give them a sign, Emmanuel would be born of a virgin. And so here they're told further, they're told where Emmanuel will come, where that light will dawn. They're told that these people who walk in darkness and know that your, your land is dark and you deserve it because you've turned away from the Lord because of your sins and your iniquities, it says morning will break. This promised light will come and it will be glorious. It will shine on those who are in deep darkness. And as we now both know, and, and we see a hint of it here, both Jew and Gentile. Here is a, is a small glimpse, and I'll just touch on that, but a, a small kind of showing of that, that it, where does he begin? At Galilee of the nations. Some of your translations will say Galilee of the Gentiles. This area that's looked down on by the purer Jews is the very area where God has chosen to first shine the light. And so we see this exact text actually prophesied. This isn't just um, speaking and talking about. No, we know this is actually what happened. In Matthew 4, we see this text. It says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he being Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of where? Zebulun and Nephtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So these people who were here that were oppressed greatly and troubled, they're the first to hear the gospel. I mean, they're the people that God chose that this light, the light of life, God himself, Emmanuel, would step out into his ministry. He would be the first one there. I mean, this gospel message, this preaching of Jesus, this is the beginning of the dawn of the light on all mankind. It's the very thing that we've hoped for, that there's been progressive revelation of throughout history. And in fact, consider, if you will, just the next verse, verse 17 it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, turn away from your sins, repent, turn towards God, for the kingdom of heaven is what? The kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is on its way. The kingdom of heaven might show up someday. No, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light is at hand. Consider the parallel passage to this, which is Mark 1.14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said, the time is now. The kingdom has come. The king is here. The light has dawned. There is sight to the blind, the lame walk, the mute speak. We who previously were in darkness and had no light, our eyes have been opened to see the truth of the light. And while we think about the darkness of the day and, and the light that shines, I mean, what wonderful news this would have been to the, to the Israelites of Jesus' time, right? I mean, sorely oppressed by the Romans with puppet kings in Jerusalem. They haven't been free since the time of Solomon. And here is this man born of the right lineage of the son of David, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, 
coming and proclaiming the light has dawned. Here it is. Reading scriptures from Isaiah and sitting down and saying, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Surely people would have been thinking about this prophecy. Could this man be the Messiah? Emmanuel, God with us? And for us, we know the truth, right? He is. He is God with us. He is the Messiah. He is the light that's come. And what wonderful news that is to, to us. The light has come into the world and all that comes to the light in repentance and faith will not be turned away. We will be welcomed into the kingdom of light. We will be saved from our sins and the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That's what we proclaim in a dark world. That's the light that we proclaim God, not anything we bring. The Lord, Yahweh, God of hosts. And well, what does this light mean and, and what does it bring with it? Of course, salvation. But what does that look like? Well, remember in Isaiah's day, they would not have known all this. So there's further revelation that is given. As we move into verses, the rest of the verses here, we start to see our second point, which is the joy and peace of the light. It says in verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, the nation shall be multiplied. It shall, it shall continue to grow and prosper. That's a promise given to them in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that he shall have many offsprings, that they shall prosper, they shall grow. And it says their, their joy shall be increased so this is relating this idea for the nation of Israel, for Judah at the time of the growth of a nation, the success of their crops. When it talks about dividing the spoil, it's relating the idea of victory over enemies. So this light will bring blessing to the nation of Israel. But as we know, but we as Christians know this joy as well, right? The light has shone in our hearts and, and we rejoice and we begin to reflect the light of God and, and we should boil over with joy as we consider what God has done for us, what Emmanuel has done for us. And the rest of these verses, as we continue to look at them, I want you to notice as we move through them, verses four, five, and six, we'll all start with the word for. When we see the word for, we want to take a, we want to take a second and say, what's this referring to? Because something came before it. And so these words for, it, they're going to tell us how this joy is going to be brought about. How is this light going to be bringing joy? In what ways will this bring the joy? So in verse four, it says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So there's a promise that this joy will come because the light will free the people from oppression. It is compared to the day of Midian. And this most likely is in reference to the story of Gideon. See, God freed the Israelites from Gideon in the book of or freed the Israelites from Midian using Gideon the judge in the book of Judges. And what he did, I mean, it was overwhelming numbers, impossible odds. And God not only freed them from the Midianites, he reduced the number of, of soldiers the Israelites had. He continued to, to, to show sign and to put through test time and time again where he divided the number of Israelites down to just 300 against thousands and thousands of Midianites, making the odds more and more and more impossible that this would occur. And 
God basically just caused fear in the people and the Midianites ran. The Israelites didn't even have to fight to be freed from the Midianites. And so this promise, it's relating it to this. And, and remember in Israelites' day, or in Isaiah's day, the Israelites, they faced impossible odds around them. God says, have faith in me. The day is coming that I will break the rod of those who rule over you. I will free you against any odds. It does not matter. I am God Almighty, and I can free you. Have faith. And we see that God has done that for us too, right? I mean, in the way we need it most, we are enslaved by Satan, the God of this world, blinded to our sins, held in bondage. But if we turn to Christ, we have freedom from that oppressor. We have been bought by a price, and that price is the precious blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. And we are given freedom. The yoke of sin and darkness that's upon us is lifted off of us. So while people may kill us, mock us, beat us, it does not matter because we have hope in God and we are free from our spiritual bondage. And that would be enough, right? I mean, just the the freedom for our spiritual bondage, if we truly understand our position underneath the wrath of God that we deserve, the freedom from that would be enough. It would be sufficient. But God is more merciful than we are. He sees more than we see. He gives us more than we would give any of us. And he gives more than that. He goes on in verse five, where we see our second four clause. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God says that not only have I brought this peace, not only have our, not only have I brought this freedom, but he will bring us peace. The boots and the cloak here, it's referring to, to battle garments of warriors. He's saying, you won't need that anymore. That, that will only be good to burn in the fire. It says that you won't need it for anything else. There will be no need to fight. These items will be useless. And once again, that must have been relief to Israel, surrounded on all sides by enemies. They say, you mean there can be peace? eternal peace, no more war? And I think we ask a similar question in the new covenant. There can be peace? What does that look like? We struggle and, and we, we try to light our own path, but we have peace in Christ. The light comes and he's given us peace that surpasses all understanding. In him, we can trust and there's no need to fight for God is our vengeance There's no need to fear because he makes all things right. No need to have anxiety because he provides all needs. This is hope, joy, and peace that all come to us because of one thing and one thing only. And that brings us to our third and final four clause and our our final point. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders." Our third point is the everlasting kingdom of the light. See, for to us a child is born. We see this promise of Emmanuel Emmanuel again. This child is promised to Israel that will come and bring peace, the joy, the prosperity. The Son of God will be given and the government will be upon his shoulders. Jesus Christ was that child. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
and we celebrate his birth at Christmas time because we know this to be true. We were given a son. See, Israel expected a warrior, a warrior at this time, a physical conqueror. They were expecting a man, uh, a Saul-like man who would be proud and tall and, and restore Israel to its glory of formal times physically and through war. But John in chapter 1 tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not know him. See, Jesus came in a way they did not expect. He came as a lowly servant. He came humble. He obeyed the commandments of God in our place, even to the point of death. And John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. The son is given to us. Why? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And see, Christ obeyed to the point of death. But the story doesn't end there, right? Three days later, God raised the son from the dead. And that is how he can fulfill this. That's how we can have this eternal kingdom. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, Jesus was not merely a man who came to conquer a kingdom. He is a wonderful counselor who determined before the beginning of time, the end from the beginning, before there was any to give him counsel. He is the mighty God who spoke the world into the existence by the power of his voice. He is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him. He is the everlasting father, the creator of eternity itself. He does not change. He does not waver. He is the prince of peace, the one who came to bring peace and end all wars to the earth. And just as God said he would, the seed of the woman came and crushed the head of the serpent on the cross, and now we are free from our captor. We are free from the judgment that we rightly deserve. The government of the world has been upon the shoulders of God from the very beginning in eternity past as he has sovereignly ruled and reigned, bringing about events that would reconcile sinful man back to a holy God that would give us light to follow back to our creator. But there is a problem that I see. I, I don't think we can leave this text without asking a very important question, which I'm sure most of you have on your mind. This light was promised to end all wars, pain, suffering, and sin. We look around, and as we pointed out, it's, it's evident there's still much of that in the world. Much pain and much strife can cause us to scratch our head. Has, has God's word failed? No, right? And maybe some of you here deal with a more personal version of darkness. Not everyone does, but this time of year, we know it's worse than ever. People are lonely. Maybe the gloom of anguish is upon your soul. Depression, anxiety, hopelessness. I want you to hear me sincerely. God's word doesn't fail. He gives hope. He offers forgiveness to all people. He promises that there is true everlasting hope in Christ. He offers the thing our souls most long for. Peace with our maker. 
peace with our creator, joy in his presence forever. I mean, we stand guilty before God and he's given us 2,000 years of grace for us all to listen to the words that the light came and spoke. Repent and believe the gospel of God. And just as those Israelites in, in Egypt needed the blood of the lamb to protect them from the wrath of God, you and I need that same blood of the Lamb of God to cover us. These verses prophesy not only Christ's first advent, but his second as well. God's word does not fail. There is a day coming, which Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, he said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were living as if nothing was going to happen. Are you living as if nothing is going to happen? So were they until the day that Noah entered the ark and they were unaware the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. First John 2.8 says that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The darkness that we have seen since the fall of Adam is on its way out. It's leaving. There is fullness of light coming. Christ will return to sit on the throne of David forever. He will reign with justice and with righteousness what a glorious day that will be for us that have been covered by the blood of the lamb, for us that have entered the ark, Jesus Christ, to be protected from the flood that is to come. But we now stand as all the prophets that have come before us, the men and women that stand and say the light is true. There's truth all the way back to Genesis. We call out in the darkness and call people to turn to the light. And there are two things uh, that should sober us. First, as you go back and look at this text, notice that in verse two, from verse two on, this is in the past tense. I mean, we can be so sure that all of these things are coming to pass, we can speak of them as if they've already happened. There is no question. There is no wondering if this will happen. It will happen. And secondly, in verse seven, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's word does not fail. We're not depending on a man or a woman. We're depending on God Almighty himself to do this and bring this about. This is true and this is coming. We have just a second here. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament. You've gone to Matthew. You've gone too far. Go back. In chapter 4, of Malachi 4. See, in the day of Malachi, there was no difference. They had the, the same things going on. And in the book of Malachi, we see this back and forth between them and God. God says, you've defiled my altar. And they're, I mean, indignant. How have we defiled your altar? I mean, to speak back to God in such a way. And God, though they, just like us, deserve to be crushed underneath the wrath of the Lord, the Lord offers mercy. Chapter four, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, he says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The same name for God used in verse 7 of Isaiah 9. Yahweh will do this. The delight is coming back, and it is unyielding, unwavering. And for us in Christ, it brings healing in its wings. So as application, rejoice in that. Know that Christ is coming. We celebrate the light that came into the world. Christ will come back again. This time he will be who Israel expected, the conquering king to set up a throne and reign forever. And if you're outside of Christ, that light is unyielding, it's unwavering, and it will burn you down like stubble. So I call out the same thing that Christ called out in Galilee, repent and believe in the gospel of God.